your long-tenured executive director decides to retire. Or your CEO is running out the clock. You begin to turn up the heat and your CEO finds that one last gig. Or worst case scenario, you made the wrong hire. It took you two or three years to make a move. But if you're being honest, you knew by six months, didn't you? Who am I talking to here? Who's you in these scenarios? The board chair, the executive committee, the leadership of the institution. I'm talking to you. Yep, you are the leadership. Maybe that's the biggest headline of this podcast. Once you know there's going to be a leadership transition, the power shifts to you. And getting this right, you don't have a more important job than this one. Some organizations have the resources to hire a search firm and others wish. But is the search firm the key to a successful search? Here's what I think. I think searches are really hard work whether you hire a firm or not. And I've seen home run searches without a firm and botched ones with a firm. The common thread I see that defines the success of the search is the health and strength of the board of directors. And today, I want to talk about this. How does a board of directors prepare an organization for a terrific search, thus exponentially increasing the potential for success? There is no point in an organization's life in which it is more vulnerable than the moment a decision is made that the CEO will move on. I'm hoping that this conversation can help you be more aware of what you can do to protect your organization during this time and what you can do to set your search up for success. We'll talk with someone who has vast experience in nonprofit search and whose firm is sought out for its many strengths, including its ability to bring clients a strong and diverse candidate pool. Let's get to it. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. Learn more at joangary.com. I'm a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. As the Managing Director Equity Initiatives for Koya Partners, Melissa is responsible for ensuring that Koya's commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion is infused into every aspect of the firm's work with clients, candidates, and staff. In leading this work, Melissa applies her experience as a search leader for numerous organizations, as well as her background in social work and staff development. Prior to this role, Melissa served as Managing Director Equity Executive Search with Koya Partners, primarily focusing on identifying senior leaders for social justice organizations. Melissa led or co-led executive searches for organizations including Innocence Project, Demos, Community Change, Foundation for a Just Society, Move On, Southern Poverty Law Center, and Hetrick Martin Institute. Though her earlier nonprofit, through her earlier nonprofit work, Melissa developed a deep understanding of a variety of nonprofit roles and organization cultures. Prior to joining Koya in 2015, she held positions with UNICEF USA, Safe Horizon, and Cities of Service. She also served as a founding core member and program manager with City Year New York. Melissa serves on the Advisory Council of Equity in the Center 
a national initiative dedicated to creating a more diverse and equitable social sector talent pipeline. She actively volunteers her time to provide coaching and mentorship to leaders of color and members of the LGBTQ plus community. Melissa holds a master's of social work from the School of Social Policy and Practice at the University of Pennsylvania, and she earned her BA in human services and theater performance from Northeastern University. Melissa, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your insights today. Thanks so much for having me, Joan. It's great to be here with you. So folks heard your bio, and it's one of the things I just love about people in search. There doesn't seem to be, maybe there's a degree in it, but I very infrequently talk to someone who has such a thing. My friend Dara Klarfeld, who from DRG, who has also been a podcast guest, uh, runs another search firm. She's an ordained rabbi. Every search leader seems to have this kind of wacky, wildly diverse background. So how did your professional path lead you to search? And please don't leave out how uh, theater performance fits in. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I'll plan Fantastic place for us to start. And especially, I love Dara too, and I agree, similar to her and similar to so many people in search. We, you know, it's, it's things that line us up for this work, even though we have no idea. And then all of a sudden, one day, it's the only thing that we can do. And so I think as it's you a just, funny thing. It's actually a funny thing because I don't, I mean, maybe there are lots of other professional, um, uh, you know, sort of professional career paths that are like that, but this one seems uniquely wacky in that way. Definitely, definitely. And I think it's, people think about what their superpowers are. My superpower, I, I'm rarely the smartest person in the room. I'm sometimes the most interesting, but what my superpower is, is figuring out who the smartest and who the most interesting people are in any room and then introducing them to each other. That's <laughs> what I can do. <laughs> And so, you know, you just like you shared my bio, I've had the chance to be in so many different types of organizations. I've done community-based work and national work and global work and in different parts of the organizations, mostly in development, but also on the program side and operations. I, and I'm a social worker by training, as you said. I've got this theater background, which is fun and interesting. And so when it gets down to it, I love talking to people. I love networking. I love having genuine and authentic relationships and seeing how I can be a resource to folks. And I was extremely, extremely lucky and fortunate when I was at UNICEF USA to have Rajesh Anandan as my leader when I was there. Right. And he was a believer, and I know you know him, Joan, and a lot of folks do. He believed in creating 10% of everyone on his team's time to carve out for them to do other work something that benefited the organization in some other way. Wow. Yeah. And, and that's unusual, especially considering he was leading a development team. Right. And so what we found was that I loved recruiting. And I liked going out and talking to people and get, letting them get to know UNICEF USA. And, um, and so I was having a great time doing that, but it wasn't my core job. I was really a fundraiser. And it was just through a perfect stroke of fate that I was introduced to Katie Bhutan, who's the founder of Hoya Partners. And she talked to me about what her vision was and the work that Koya was doing. She talked to me about her values. And just as she talked to me about it, I had no idea what an enormous sector the search field is and how many variations exist of nonprofit search professionals. But I, I just decided that this is what I needed to do. And immediately 
jumped onto this vision. And I said, it could be Koya, it could be somewhere else, but this is what I need to be doing with my life. And I fell into it. And I just, I've really found a home in the space. And, and it's allowed me to create a career that's focused on helping people, connecting people, listening to people, all of those instinctive things that I love. And I think the theater part, just like you said, that really comes in because I, um, so much of being a social worker and so much of being an actor is understanding what drives someone. Yeah. And reading people, right? Exactly. Exactly. And so I I was thinking it might maybe a little improv. Improv never hurts. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. And, and I think that it, that actually comes out when I'm working with my clients. Yep. It, it helps with the candidates, but even somewhere with the clients, when they're having a hard time getting something out, talking about the hard thing, then that's where I have the training and the understanding to look at things from their perspective and to try to help them work through it. And maybe to distract them and say like, okay, now be a tree. <laughs> That's never come up. I'm no. going to try that. Yeah. <laughs> just you know, you know, remember that it's in your bag of tricks. I think yes. that's that's what's important. Um, <laughs> so um, before we dig in specifically, I made a, a, a statement and I want to and I want you to respond to it that that when a CEO, when it's determined that a CEO or an executive director has moved on, the power shifts to the board, that the board takes on a new level of responsibility. And I just wanted to actually ask you, A, do you agree? And B, do you think that most boards um, actually get that? I definitely agree. I 100% agree. That is the sing- this is the single most important thing that a board will do, that any board member will do in their tenure is choosing a new leader for the organization. Um, I do not think that people get that. And I, I think that they don't get it at, at the wrong... at the at at a crucial moment when they decide to be on a board right. too. Because it's, you know, you join a board because your friend asked you, you went to a party and it was fun. And, you know, the, the, meaning, the work of the organization is exciting and sure, I'll give some money or I'll go to some meetings and it'll be great. And the next thing you know, the fiscal responsibility of this organization, the stress of all these people who are impli- employed by this organization and who are served by this organization, it's not what you signed up for. <laughs> well, actually, it would be fine if it was not what you signed up for. But the truth of the matter is, most board members actually do not know what they signed up for. And they do exactly. not understand what an important job they have. And exactly. the reason for that, don't get me started, is that um, most nonprofit organizations um, recruit uh, out what, with what I call the butts in seats strategy. Yeah. And God forbid we should actually tell board members that they have an important job because if we told them it was important, oh my gosh, they might run screaming in the other direction. That's right. So, um, so you're right. We are not telling board members at the right time that they have an important job, that that's a good thing. People like to have important jobs. Yeah. So... <laughs> Um, somehow or another, we think that if we sell it short, that people are more inclined. But when in fact, the high performing type A people who join boards, they like having important jobs and they like being successful. So I'm okay. My soapbox is now officially away. And, um, uh, you're at, and so 
So these are your clients in many ways, right? Is that these, you know, sort of, I'm old enough to say this, and if you're old enough to laugh when I say it, you'll know that you and I are the same age. There's sort of a McHale's Navy kind of thing about certain boards that are actually your clients. When you interview for a search, do you interview the board? Do you think to yourself, this board has to be healthy enough to be our partner so that I can do an effective search with them? That's a really great question. Um, You know, yes, actually. When we do a pitch, we're obviously, we know we're being compared to other search firms. This is a really competitive space. And there are definitely opportunities where we'll meet with board members and we'll say, this just isn't right for us. Right. This, this, we're not going to be successful in this search. And, and sometimes we say, it might not be right. We know this is going to be hard. We're going to do it anyway. Yep. Usually that comes down to what the mission is. And if yeah. we are passionate about the mission and we really want to, to be there and help this organization, then often we'll say, we'll push through whatever the challenges are. But there are definitely times when, when we hear where the board is and we say, this, this is not something that makes sense for us to do. And so in those situations, we will pass. So a good segue to this, to, to this question is, how do you go about diagnosing the health of the organization to lead this search with you? So, so yeah. how, what, do you, what do you look for? So once we're once we've we've established there's a partnership, I, we we start with this needs assessment process. That's actually my favorite part of the search. And I think that's the social work training in me is that I love to get in and climb through the dirty closets and dust away the cobwebs and see what's going on. And so we do that. I think, that, I think you and I might be kindred spirits because that's actually what I like about consulting with organizations is sort of rolling up my sleeves and climbing around and digging in. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Keep going. No, no. And so, so we start these conversations and we're having them with staff. We're having them with the leadership. So other board members and this, in a lot of conversations with the senior staff, we're talking to donors sometimes, to other stakeholders. If it's a membership organization, we're, we're talking to members. And And in these conversations, we're hearing about what's going well at the organization and what their aspirations are for a new leader. But we're also hearing about where they've got opportunities for growth or change. And so that's one part of our due diligence or needs assessment process. The other part is that we really listen to what their peers are saying about them in the space. And sometimes that happens after we go out to market. Often that happens after we go out to market. Sometimes we do it even before where we'll make a few phone calls and say, hey, what do you know? About this organization, or what do you think? And that gives us a very good sense of what the reputation is of the organization on the street. And with that, we have a sense of, of what the perceived challenges could be, but also where the assets are. The other thing that we do is we look at their financial documents and their strategy materials. What are they looking at for what's going ahead? But also, what are the challenges that they've had to overcome? Or where are they financially? Are we looking at needing somebody who's going to be coming in and there's a, a funding cliff that's about to be hit, things like that. So we really try to understand the full picture of, of what we're selling before we start talking to potential candidates. So there's, there's a lot about a search that's about fit, right? So whether the person has the skills or the experience, right, you might see that on paper, but there's something about a fit. And I have a, a podcast that I did with Michael Watkins, who wrote The First 90 Days, which is kind of a you must have on your bookshelf, like right next to my own book, for example. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
<laughs> and he he talks about asking questions about when you're interviewing, asking questions about learning the organization's culture. And I wonder he had we we ended up having a conversation. I'll hold it pending your pending your response. But how do you how do you learn about the organization's culture and whether or not the person might be absolutely the right person, but the wrong person given the culture of the institution? That's a great question. Um, So first I'll say one of the things is we're having conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion in, in the space. Yes. Something that we've really tried to acknowledge is that culture fit often comes with deep bias. Yes. And that's what leads organizations to pick people who look like them and feel like them. And that's not diversity by definition, right? So so we try to think of it as um, culture alignment, mission Mm -hmm. alignment, Mm -hmm. values alignment, and um, and, an ad, culture ad. So that's just a different framing that we try to bring so that it's a little bit less of a, let's go find a bunch of people who like all the same stuff we like. Yes. The thing, when it comes to understanding what a culture of an organization is, part of it is we ask that specific question when we do all of those needs assessment conversations. I ask all of those questions, but a big piece of it is spending time, just spending time with the staff and with the board. So I have a a great example. There was an organization, a foundation that I was doing a series of searches for a few years ago. and, And I'd asked this question and all of these stakeholder conversations early on. And then I happened to be in their office on a Thursday. And every Thursday they had full, the full foundation came together and had a staff lunch. Okay. And it was somebody's birthday. And they have a whole birthday song that they sing for somebody's birthday that is not happy birthday to you. (laughs) And so, and I was sitting there and I was like, nobody brought this up. Right. When I did the conversations because it's so part of who they are, but it it reflected so much about what their culture is. They had the, they really thought of themselves as a foundation that had a family like atmosphere yep. and feel. And when I saw that, it helped me to go out and describe the culture of that foundation a thousand times better. Very interesting because that was a there was something about joy. There was something about family. There was probably something that I bet the song was funny. Right. Totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Got it. I totally get it. Um, so, um, so a board now has been handed the baton, right? Um, and they think that the first step is to write a job description. And as I, as I talk about it, they spend, um, the average nonprofit spends about three and a half months writing a job description when they could simply have just put on one piece of paper, Messiah wanted. Uh, <laughs> That's right. and, and so they, they, they waste so much time writing the job description. Um, and, and I don't know, maybe, I don't know if search firms are part of the problem in this regard. I don't really know, but, um, the question is, I have is what are the some of the very first important steps a board should take? Because I believe it's been ingrained in them that uh, wordsmithing a job description is somehow or another the most important first thing they need to do. Yeah. I think that the first steps happen before you even have an inkling that the executive director, or the CEO or president might be stepping away. 
And that's hard thing for board members to hear because I don't want to think about succession planning. Everything's going great. Why would we think about what comes next? And um, and and I think it needs to be. And you have a you have a great interview that you did around succession planning um, that that people should go back and listen to. And and part of what came out of that interview that I really agree with is that it has to be an ongoing, real, attention paid discussion to not just succession planning in my perspective, but really pathway planning. Yes. And how do, we, how do we look at who's internal that we want to build up? And how do we make sure that we know who's there, that we know what the reputation is of the organization, that we know where the trouble spots are so that we're addressing those well before we're going out looking for that Messiah and spending all of that time on that beautiful job description. Because the search firm is going to come in and mess with the job description anyway. That's their job. You're paying them to do that. So let the search firm do that if you're using a search firm. And then, you know, I, I placed a woman not so long ago who was a number two at an organization and I asked her and she was phenomenal. This is truly one of the best, best candidates I've ever placed. And we found her sort of out of the clear blue sky. She didn't come to us. We went to her and I asked her, I said, will it be a shock to your organization that you're leaving? And she said, I think so. I said, really? And she said, my CEO has never asked me what my career ambitions are. So my CEO had no idea that I really wanted to be a leader one day, that I wanted to be an executive director one day. And so having those conversations in advance is really, really important so that you know who in that second level actually wants to be moving into the senior leadership role. And then you can think about how to fill in gaps for them if they need to skill build or or prepare them if if the organization is going to be going in a different direction. So that's all one thing. Um, I think that staff engagement is really important. And so figuring out the role that the staff is going to play in the transition. Um, I hear very, very frequently from staff that the executive director or the CEO gave notice three months before the board even started talking to a search. And so the board has to be ready to move as quickly as possible. They have to know that it's probably going to take six months to find somebody, let that person transition out of their job, get them into the role so that you really need to be planning ahead or plan to have an interim. And then, and I think that the role the staff plays, and I think we should talk a little bit more about that actually, is, um, is really key. And so thinking about how the staff can and should be a part of that and search firm can help to guide that. The other thing that I would say is that it's important to start thinking almost immediately about who's going to be on that search committee, yes, but also who's going to be on the transition committee. Because that's a whole different set of people, or it could be a whole different set of people on the board who are responsible for getting that that new leader onboarded and into the organization in a really successful way. And that's, I think, some of the great work that you do, Joan, and others do as well, is is helping with that in a a very hands-on way. But I think that is as important when it comes to the list of things that need to be checked off. Is there a recipe for a good, for a recipe for an ideal search committee? And just um, two um, things. One is, should the board chair sit on the search committee? And secondly, do you like uh, people outside the organization to be on the search committee? Mm. So um, it's very helpful if the board chair is on the search committee. It just allows fast, hard decisions to get, be, get, to get made quickly. So I do like that. Um, aside from that, 
it's it's a range of things. I don't think that there's a certain you need two of these and two of these and two of these. Right. I think you need people who can really give significant chunks of time, sometimes days at a time, and sometimes unplanned. Because there are a lot of last minute decisions that come up, especially at the end. So I think that's important. People who are connected to the staff and have the staff's trust and people who really genuinely understand the strengths and the weaknesses of the organization. It's important to have people who are not loose cannons, who are not going to get into the interviews and try to showboat and ask a bunch of gotcha questions. That's, that's not helpful for anybody. So keep those people out. And I think that it's important to, to make sure, and this is where the, the outside people can come in. If your board isn't already diverse, which it should be, see previous notes about things to look ahead on, right. <laughs> then, um, then, the, then, then that's where sometimes organizations do bring in other external folks. Um, and so those might be people who are peer leaders at other organizations who will right. really be able to assess somebody um, or former board members. I've seen that happen as well. Yep, great. I'm going to talk about, just for a couple seconds, the board as a collection of individuals versus a cohesive unit. And anytime an organization is at some kind of an inflection point, the more cohesive the board is, the more capably they will be able to navigate that inflection point. And every time I do anything with an, any kind of an offsite that involves the board and I don't call them team builders, um, the icebreakers, <clears throat> but I always do something that enables people to identify who they are in the world and what they stand for and who their value, what their values are in an effort to build some kind of cohesion. And I just, I, I, I just wonder, is, is that something you also see that, um, move, uh, the, uh, the board that is more cohesive is more likely to run a good search? I think that's right. And it's for a few reasons. Um, behind the scenes, it's important because they're, the board members can speak to each other in a way. They can lift each other up. They can pull out the quiet voices. They can challenge each other and push back on each other in a way that an external consultant can't do. And they can really only do that when they have the relationships there and they understand what drives each other. And, and on the front-facing side of it, when candidates see that board members are collegial and supportive of each other, then they understand and feel that the board would be collegial and supportive with them as the leader. And so it makes for a more engaging and inviting experience uh, or, or um, vision of what it would be like to work with, with these board members for the candidates who are interviewing and getting to know the board. So pretend I'm the board chair of an organization and uh, I have just, we've just learned that our CEO is leaving and we didn't really have a succession plan. Every year we'd go into executive session and we'd have the, what happens if Carlos gets hit by a bus? And we'd spend 20 minutes talking about the bus and who else is on the bus and uh, where the bus is going. And we'd all feel really good about ourselves. And then we'd go out of executive session and said, well, we had this succession planning conversation. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, I wanted to just give me some advice on how, so I, you're telling me that the baton got handed to me, Melissa. Um, what does that mean for me in terms of how I and the board interact with the staff? 
what is lead? Because because I'm kind of, are you telling me that I'm kind of leading the staff too during this period of time? Like I don't have a big enough job already, <laughs> Melissa? Well, it, it depends on what the day-to-day leadership of the staff plan is going to be. That that needs to be worked out. Somebody needs to be in charge at the office or at the virtual office every day. That doesn't need to be the board chair. The board chair does need to be in touch with whoever that person is. But once those logistics get figured out, which should happen pretty quickly, obviously, there does need to be time set up for the board to be in direct communication with and direct conversation with staff leaders. And then also to spend time with the whole staff so that every single person on the staff gets to see the board members. They're not strangers and they're, they're able to communicate with them. And at least in some capacity or that some route is set up for them to be in communication. I think that's the most important and first thing that has to happen. I find, you can tell me if you find this too, that when there's a transition, uh, first of all, not surprisingly, staff get very, very, very anxious, right? They don't know what it means. What does it mean for me? What does it mean for, I, I, what, what, what's going to happen and that boards are no t- time means something different to an anxious person, right? Yeah. Than it does to the board that's anxious in its own way. And so I was, I've been working with an organization in a big transition and I, I had to laugh with the senior team. And I, they said, you know, the staff is very, very anxious and we haven't really heard anything from the board at all. Well, they had actually. And they had, and it had only been like, I don't know, maybe two and a half weeks before. The whole process had only been like six weeks so far. But I, I do think it's really, really important that the board think about over-communicating. Even if they say, well, we just sent an email out like three weeks ago. That feels like an eternity to a staff in transition. Don't you think? That's right. I think that's right. And I think it's, I, I mean, this is my personal opinion, but I think it's not too much to ask to have a board member just plan to join a staff meeting every every two weeks, every month, whatever is the right pace and, and cadence for that organization. But just to show up and show that, that stuff is happening. The thing I really have learned is that people fill silence with whatever drive is driven by their anxiety. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, um, so um, let's keep it, let's stay on staff. And then I want to move on. I want to move back to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. Um, how to engage staff in the search. Is there, a, is there a best practice here? I know the worst practice because I experienced it myself when I was a finalist for the job at GLAAD and I was interviewed by a select group of staff members who believed they had a vote when they didn't really have one. And they picked the other person. <laughs> oh. Well, to be fair, they picked the other person because the other person had fundraising experience and they all knew that the finances were a hot mess. Why why on earth would they pick the person who'd never done any fundraising before? But so best practices on how to engage staff in the search at what point or points? Uh, Yeah, and it's definitely a number of points. At the beginning, 
having the search firm come meet with the staff directly. Let's take away the mystery. Let's take away the secrecy or what's perceived as secrecy. And so, so that's one of the things that I love doing is getting in front of a staff and helping them understand and breaking down what the process is going to look like, asking for their recommendations the staff who are doing this work every single day know who the leaders in the field are. They know who they want. They've been thinking about this. So, so asking for their insight on who candidates should be and who, what the organizations are that, that they respect. The other thing is really making sure that the staff understands from the beginning what their role is and what it isn't. Yep. And that's exactly what you're talking about, John. It's making sure that they know that they will be able to give input they will not have veto power. They will not have ranking power. They will not have the authority to vote, things like that. Some organizations do put a lot of organizations now, especially in the social justice space where I focus, put their, um, make sure that their staff representation on the search committee. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It's becoming much more common. And I find it to be incredibly useful. Oh, now, interesting. Yeah, it can be really sticky figuring out who gets to represent the staff on that search committee. And so we've, I mean, We've led basically student council elections to, <laughs> to do that. We've done any number of things. It depends on the culture of the organization. And that takes a lot of, of customized thought. But, but it is nice to have at least, if not, if not staff on, if not two or three staff on the search committee, having, um, having a representative who can be involved on a regular basis and be the liaison. That's actually, that feels to me like a more... Uh, evolved or recent, more recent kind of development? Because I, I think a decade ago, that would be seen as a very bad idea. Exactly, exactly. And one of the things that we found is that it's important for staff to so that they know that things are happening. Then also the candidates want that. The candidates know that the board members don't work there every day. Yeah. The candidates want to talk to the people who are, they'll actually be managing. Very and so we usually do bring some staff in um, in a second round of interviews. But again, very intentionally and very specifically framing what their role will be and communicating that to them in a deep way. Um, and, and gathering their feedback, really listening to their feedback. The other thing that we do is, um, is we often survey the whole staff at the beginning. I like that a lot. Yeah. 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 Um, because then it actually, the, their voices are heard at the beginning and shaping the profile, right? Precisely. That's yeah. exactly right. And shaping the, and shaping the interview questions, yep. all of those things. During COVID lockdown, I took time from Netflix binging to rewrite my book, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. I wanted to make sure that board and staff leaders had a new guide to help them to navigate a very different world, one where old rules don't apply and some new rules will be critical to thriving. This version is now in paperback, and you can learn more at book.joangary.com. As the founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits, I have the privilege of hearing the stories of the remarkable work being done every single day by an amazing group of kind and generous leaders around the globe. I want you to hear their stories too, uplifting and inspiring. Now there's something we could use a whole lot more of, right? And that's why I want to introduce you to the Leadership Lab's own podcast, Your Nonprofit Life. In each episode, our lab's director of member experience, Laura Zelke, interviews a leader of a small nonprofit, offering you the opportunity to hear about their unique path into the sector, learn about the important work they're doing, and be inspired by their passion and determination to change the world in ways large and small. Sample this dose of hope at yournonprofitlife.com 
or you can find it on your favorite podcast app. We are um, having a conversation about um, CEO transitions, and we're talking with Melissa Madzell, who's the Managing Director of Equity Initiatives for Koya Partners. And um, she is responsible for ensuring that Koya's commitment to DEI is infused in every aspect of the firm's work. Um, she has done um, many, many social justice searches and has her boots have been on the ground in a variety of nonprofit roles. And um, we're, uh, we are talking about search firms, but we're actually talking about the board's role during a transition and how they can set a search up to succeed. So as you've been listening, and you might be a smaller organization saying, you know, pigs will have wings before we'd be able to afford a search firm. But that doesn't mean you can't glean from what Melissa is talking about here and infuse that into your own internal search. So uh, please don't disregard the advice. Actually just incorporate it into your own internal workings if you can't, um, if you are not in a position to afford a search firm. I want to talk about um, what clearly has been um, a um, a big uh, conversation in the in the nonprofit space for sure, but elsewhere as well. Um, this the sentence I am hearing so often in the last nine months: we have to hire a person of color. We we have to. Melissa, we have to hire a person of color. I mean, we, you know, we serve we serve a diverse constituency, um, and we really haven't done a great job on this up to this point, Melissa. And um, uh, so uh, we know that you have a reputation at Koya for strong and diverse candidate pools. So we would like to work with you because we have to hire a leader of color. What do you say to me, Melissa? Oh, Joan, (laughs) that is definitely the number one thing that we're hearing these days in our world. It has been for a while, um, especially now, though. And it's one of the hardest things for me to hear. And at the same time, I get it. I'm a Black woman. And as I look at organizations, I know that when I look at who the leadership is, it makes a difference when I see a person of color at the top. So... I think that it's very important. And at the same time, we need to be very realistic. And we're in a moment of his, a moment where history just doesn't align with the desire of all of these organizations that suddenly realized that they're behind the eight ball on this. And so we've got a situation where people of color have been shut out of leadership for ages, either intentionally or unintentionally. Right. And so it means that despite the fact that there are plenty of people of color who are very highly qualified, very highly educated, there are just fewer people who have had access to leadership positions because of the cultures and the structures that have guided the nonprofit sector forever. So when search committees are comparing candidates, they say, well, this candidate who's white or these two candidates who are white have a resume that more aligns with what we expected to see And we're looking at one or two candidates who are people of color who have a different different background than we expected. They could do the job, but we don't know whether or not we should go with a non-quantity or somebody Mm -hmm. coming from an organization that we know, Mm -hmm. things like that. And so 
that creates this tension that exists on search committees and on right. boards when it comes to making their selections. And so they need to, boards really need to look in the mirror and think about how do we support leaders who are coming from slightly different backgrounds to help them be successful? And so that's, that's one thing. Okay. Um, the other thing that I would add is that we're at this moment right now in, and we're looking at a racial reckoning and a long overdue racial reckoning in this country and qualified Black, Indigenous, people of color who, Black or Indigenous or people of color candidates who have tremendous options because they know that everybody's trying to get to them. Right. And so I, it's, I, I hear it when I talk to my friends. I know it just from my own personal experience as a person of color. Recruiters are knocking down our doors. So that means when we find the thing that, that feels right, we're looking very, very closely at who's in leadership Will we be successful in this role? Because often we know that recruiters are just talking to us because of the way that we look. And so we really want to think through, are we set up for success here? Because if I fail as a person of color, I represent so much more than just Melissa Madzell failing. I represent all Black women failing in this organization. And that also means that we have a lot of real in-depth decision-making that we need to do for ourselves, understanding the organization, wanting to, wanting to really understand what the experience, where this organization is in its journey along the DEI continuum, if you want to think about it that way. So we're going to be attracted to organizations that have already been doing the hard work, Correct. that have already been having internal conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And frankly, we're going to want a lot of money. And we're probably going to want to move quickly because we have a a lot of opportunities on the table. And so this is something that we're really advising our search committees on now. Be ready to negotiate, have flexibility in that salary. If this is so important to you, be ready to put money behind it for coaching. Be ready to have that transition committee on board and and able to set this person up for success. And if you want this person who comes in, who's a person of color to be successful, because the worst thing is to hire that first person of color to be the leader and they fail, If you want that person to be successful, clean up that house in advance. Make sure the finances are straight. The relationships with donors are straight. The reputation of the organization is all in good shape. Do all of that in advance. And that's what makes for a successful transition. Well, I also think that something you said is really important to amplify, which is um, organizations that are on the journey, doing the work, are exponentially more attractive to leaders of color than those who who believe that a person of color is going to come in and be the change they seek. Exactly. That in fact, actually, that is just simply a setup, isn't it? I mean, that, right. this, is, this is why leaders of color fail at disproportionate rates because it's a box checking exercise and the organization does not have the scaffolding in place, does not, has not had the hard conversations and the, the biases that are there um, just wreak havoc on the leader of color and they either leave or they, well, they leave, right. (laughs) They leave at at, an exponentially higher rates than, um, than their white counterparts. That's right. That's exactly right. And so I, I, I just, um, if, if there is a a call to action in this conversation, um, 
it really is that it, it, you know, it, it really is. Um, I, I just can't begin to talk about how hard it is. I mean, you know, the, the, the scenarios I described at the start, which is a long tenured executive director or a founder or a retiring executive director, it's really, really a hard time in an organization. Um, and, um, but it's coming. You, they, <laughs> everyone exactly. knows it's coming. I have a client who's, retiring after a, a skajillion years. And I had a conversation with a board and executive session. And one of the board members literally said to me, why do you think she's leaving? First of all, the person was in their seventies. Let's start there and then move, move on from there. <laughs> I'm like, uh, hello. <laughs> this isn't a shocker. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, we're not talking front page news here, dude. And, um, uh, but there is such a tendency for board members to just hide under rocks and assume that everything will be fine until it's not. And um, the board, you know, I, I, you must see this too, right? The staff will push the organization and the board to move on um, on the work of DEI. And the board will kind of get it. Mm-hmm. Well, how about listening to this podcast and knowing that if you don't do this work and you go and hire Melissa's firm to do this search, they might not pick you, <laughs> right? <laughs> because if they say, if you say to them, you know, we haven't really done very, we're, you know, we, we really need to get on this, on this DEI thing and we really need a leader of color. I'm running screaming in the other direction if I'm a search firm, right? <laughs> um, but I, I guess... Um, uh, you just have to be careful. And, and this is across all kinds of institutions, right? This yeah. is the, the, the challenge that, that higher institutions of higher ed face in bringing in, um, you know, uh, diverse socioeconomic backgrounds and that the institutions are not ready for them. Yeah. And the, the thing that I think is important to know is that it's okay if you're early in the process. I talk to a whole lot of people who, are, who could be candidates. I, I go out and recruit a lot of people. And, and sometimes I'll say to them, listen, this organization is early in its DEI journey. And usually they'll, they'll kind of do a laugh and say, that's okay. I've been there before. I get it. Right. I like that. I don't mind that. But they do want to hear that at least there's an, a, there's an acknowledgement and a recognition yes. that yes. the journey has begun. And that there are people on board who, who will be allies, who will be co-conspirators, who will be in support and in partnership with them. Right. I mean, this is it's similar to conversations that I have with executive directors that I coach where they say, you know, I, I have some wonderful people I think would be great board members, but our board is such a mess. I, like, I don't want them to join that board in its current state. And I said, you know, there are people that actually like to be transformers, that they dig that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's really, I think that's really, really true. Um, I'm going to ask one last question. Uh, I think it's one last question. Um, (laughs) Making the decision. Um, One of the things that I find... um, is, um, and, I, and I mean no disrespect to search firms, but I do often see that when in hindsight people say, you know, I think we just picked the best of what wasn't really quite the right 
set of final candidates. And we should have continued the search. We should have gone back to the search firm and said, you know what? I don't think any of these folks are quite right. Um, and I, uh, I think that um, I just want, I wonder uh, if, if you see this and um, again, meaning to, no disrespect to searches, but I think that there, that does happen mm-hmm. and the board is so hungry to make a choice. Um, how do you, how do you, how do you grapple with that one? Yeah, it's, it's definitely happened to me before. And, and it, yeah, it stings in the moment because I've done a bunch of work and think, no, really, I, I've heard, this is who's out there. This is what I know. And usually what has gone wrong to get us to that point is that the board has not been involved enough or the staff has not been involved, involved enough in the process where yeah. we have not really heard from them in a deep way. Who do you want? Yeah. You tell us who you want and we'll figure out how to get them. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it doesn't happen perfectly every time, but often we can get pretty close. And at the same time, the more that we understand where the relationships are, the more we're able to use those relationships to help us get to those ideal candidates. So when I've had those situations where they've said, mm, we just don't know, sometimes it's a matter of like, look, the reputation of this organization is in the toilet. This is what the market is bearing for you and you need to come to terms with that. But mm. other times it, it's more of a, let's, let's step back and think about what we can do together and partner together. And who do you know and who can you call that you know mentored this person at this organization and would lead them along? Or who do we know that is best friends with and used to work with her and can give her a call? And, the, and so it's a combination of things, but it's, it's a reality and I think it's avoidable. Um, so one last, now I have one last question because we're at a, oh, we're just out of time. Any last words of advice for the board chairs who are out there listening? Let's, uh, let's assume they, um, you know, they're, they know it's coming, right? They know the conversation is a coming. Uh, any last sort of one good piece of advice that you, that you'd give to me as the board chair? Now, I know it's coming. What, uh, what, what's the best advice you can give me, Melissa? Don't ignore it. Get to know the staff of the organization. Build relationships with that next level down. Understand what the organization is about and how it's seen out in the world. So then that way, when you hear the news that you know is coming, you're ready to face it in a realistic and honest way. Um, Realistic and honest way. Let's leave it right there. I have a hunch that people are listening today and they had like 12 more questions they hoped I would ask. Um, but we don't have enough time. Uh, but I wanted to just say that I, um, I selected particular questions because I, there, there may be tactical questions that you have, like what if I have an internal candidate and you know, blah, blah, blah. But I, I wanted some big picture thinking from Melissa because A, I know she can give it to me. And secondly, I felt like it was what, <laughs> it was what you needed today. So uh, Melissa, thank you for delivering and for uh, your commitment to fueling the leadership of the sector. It's one of the things that I admire about you. And I think we are a kindred spirits in this regard. Thank you, Joan, for all that you do for the sector as well. It's really just great to be in partnership with you. Likewise. Um, so that's it for today. Um, I hope you found it useful. Maybe you took a few notes. I really do hope that if you're a board member and you're listening, that um, you understand a little bit more about 
just what a big job you have, uh, which is a good thing, by the way, and just how important it is, especially at times of organizational vulnerability and a leadership transition uh, is probably at the top of that list. So um, uh, thanks for spending some time with me. And as always, thank you for the work that you do. And I will see you next time. Hey, thanks for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thanks for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.